Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. That's where we're going to be this evening, Acts 22. And uh, we are in a series on the book of Acts. And actually today I went back and I looked like, when was our first message in the Acts series? It was in October 2019. <laughs> so uh, it has taken us a long time to get all the way here, but we are in the next three weeks, uh, four weeks, three weeks, somewhere three or four weeks, we're going to be closing out our series in the book of Acts, making our way all the way to the end of the book, and uh, what we've been doing throughout this series is this is not just a study of the book of Acts. What is the book of Acts about and all that stuff? But th- this has been a roadmap or a fleshed out inspiration to what we want to be as a church. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, well, what kind of church, you know, I'm, doing, I'm in this church history class right now in seminary. What kind of church is an effective church? And down through the ages, it was the church that was kind of linked up with the state that was very effective, <laughs> or at least it seemed like it was effective, and then there was this reformation, and there was, there's, no, church needs to be separate from the state, and not have any involvement, and then there was this return to, the church should look like the, the first century church, like the church we read about in the book of Acts, and so much of my heart is, is in line with that, so much of my heart is for that, when I read this, this story about the first church, uh, there, there's so many stories and parts of me, they just go, oh, I want that. And so we've been looking at Acts as this kind of roadmap for what we want to be as a church. And, and here's where we're at in the story. So the first part of the book of Acts is all about this church. It's all about um, Peter and the apostles starting the church, planting other churches. And then towards the end of the book, we've entered this portion, towards the end of the book, it narrows in and it just specifically talks about this person named Paul. Um, if you're new to, to the scriptures, Paul is this guy who he went from persecuting Christians, killing Christians, approving of their deaths, to actually being the foremost church planter. Majority of the New Testament is written by Paul, and he was called an apostle. What does that mean? Well, an apostle is a, it's a Roman military term for someone who goes to a conquered town, a town that's been conquered by Rome, and makes it look culturally like Rome. It's like, we're going to use this architecture. You're going to eat these foods. We're going to, we're, this is our entertainment now. I know you were doing this before, but this is what Rome looks like. This is what it's going to look like. So you think about that term. Jesus uses this term about his followers, or some of them, that they're going to be apostles. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul's job is to make the Mediterranean. It's not a bad, bad gig. It's like, if you have to go anywhere <laughs> to, to be on mission, the Mediterranean's not so bad. To make the Mediterranean look like heaven. He's like, no, in heaven it looks like this. In heaven, it actually, no, we do this. And so uh, we're focused in on this person, Paul, as he goes to these different places, plants these churches, and makes it look more like heaven. Now, where we find Paul at this point in the story is at this fever pitch of a climax of the book of Acts. He is determined to get an audience with Caesar. 
the Caesar. And he wants to share the gospel with Caesar. Um, now, we're, we're about to jump into, Paul is not quite to Caesar yet. Uh, he, he's on his, his way there. He's still in Jerusalem, and he's standing before a Jewish legal council that basically want his head. So, look down at your Bibles. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. Here's where we pick up the story. The commander, a Roman commander, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. He's like, what's so bad about this guy? So the next day, he released Paul and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. That's this Jewish kind of uh, court. To assemble. Then he brought Paul and set him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. Notice the language. And said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realized that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. (laughs) We should listen to that. Uh, Verse 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why? Verse 8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believed all these things. Verse 9. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel, has spoken to him. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down, take him away uh, by force, uh, and bring him to the barracks. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is just a a little bit of a pit stop on the way, on Paul's way to Rome. Uh, But when I read this, uh, what stood out immediately to me, what reached out of the text and grabbed onto my heart as I was thinking about this evening, was the confidence of Paul to say this in verse 1. He looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And as I read that, I began to think, can I say that? Fulfilled my duty in all clean conscience, in all good conscience to God. And so this evening, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about living our lives in good conscience. There's an obvious personal application to the story, an individual application to uh, this story. There's this man nearing the end of his life, and he's faced with all that he's done. And as he surveys over his life, and he counts the cost of what it may mean to be this bold in front of the Jewish uh, ruling class, uh, he says, yes, I have a clean conscience. 
in, I've done my duty before God in a good conscience. And here's the shock of it. If you're unfamiliar with Paul, here's the shock of it. Paul actually kind of lived a bad life. You're like, you lived, you're like, wait a second. Just a few chapters earlier, you were standing in front of Stephen, a Jewish man who was being stoned for his faith, the same faith that you're declaring right now, and you were approving of it. You lived all your life in good conscience before the Lord. How can Paul say that? Doesn't it seem arrogant? It's almost that same kind of thought that I, I know maybe, maybe you've had before, I've had before, is how can somebody, they live a whole horrible life, and at the end of their life, they, they get scared of hell, and they go, God, if you're real, I believe in you. And just like to the thief on the cross, it's like, oh, you'll be in paradise today. Really? How? How can he say this? Well, well here, here's the reality. A good conscience comes from congruence with identity more than perfect action. Having a clean conscience before the Lord comes from congruence with identity more than perfect action. Here's what I mean. The gospel message is this. You were a sinner. Even some of you may be here tonight. You're still a sinner. You were a sinner, and you were removed from God. Your sin actually put space between you and God. But in his mercy, God came to earth. We're about to celebrate this in Easter. He, he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And then he was resurrected so that we could be resurrected as well. And so now you've been, your identity has shifted. You've been made a saint. But if you're a saint, and you live your life believing that you're a sinner you are not living in congruence with your identity. You are not able to live in good conscience before the Lord. And you may think, I don't have a clean conscience before the Lord because of my sin. But that's not true. You don't have a clean conscience or a clear conscience before the Lord, not because of the sin that you're doing, but because you are disagreeing with the identity he's given you. There's no congruence. Living in good conscience is being able to lay your head on your pillow at night and say, I, I wasn't perfect today, but I repented back to my true identity when I lived out of line with it. I, I may have been misunderstood by other people. I, I, I may have upset or even offended others, but everything I did was in line with what you paid for. That's how you have a clean conscience. That's how Paul can say what he says right here. He says, yes, I have lived in good conscience. And, and so there's an obvious question here tonight that I think all of us need to contemplate on an individual level. Can you say the same? Do you, Jake was just up here speaking about the abundance of God. Do you still live with a lack mindset? Or do you believe that you get to start where Jesus finished? Now, that's the personal side. And, and I hope that maybe you're like, oh, I really need to think about that. Write that down, go home, contemplate it. But this evening, I actually want to talk more about the corporate side of this question. I, I, I want to take a moment as the leader of this church, and I want to ask, what does it mean for us to be able to say that Saints Hill has lived in good conscience before God? What does it mean to be able to say that this family of believers has fulfilled their duty 
before God in all good conscience. See, uh, as our church grows and as we change, there can be a temptation within a church to change with the times and to move on to new things, other things than what kind of founded the church. That's what we did when we were small. That's what we did when we were at the armory. Anybody remember those days? Uh, That's what we did when, when nobody was here. But now things are really different, and we need to change with the times. And what happens is that we often, or churches can, get distracted with good things, but not absolute things. It's like, that's a good idea. We should do that. But is that what we're called to do? And so one of the primary roles that I play here, this is my job, my job is to make sure that that drift doesn't happen. That's my job. I, I, I remember, uh, we, like, gosh, this is now three years ago, almost exactly, three years ago, uh, we first reached out to the head pastor here at Northside to ask if we could uh, meet. We, we were like, we have a church plant. We know where we're supposed to go. We have nowhere to meet. Could we meet in your building? And uh, I, I remember Jeff Getzinger uh, is his name. Um, Jeff brought Jake and I and Becky, you remember that, into the office. And they sat us down, him and Di and Ron Thomason, and they sat us down. These are leaders, or were leaders at um, Northside at the time. They sat us down and they began to prophesy over us. And they began to speak over what would, what would take place. And, and I'll never forget, it was so powerful to be received that way, but I, I'll never forget... I was sitting there, and Ron, Ron Thomason, if you know him, uh, he, yeah, he's an amazing guy, and uh, some Ron fans in the house, and, 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 he, uh, and he looked at me and he said, your name is Alex, you're Alexander the Great, and it's your job to protect the vision of this church. And it was like one of those words, you're like, you know, okay, whoa, that's the call on my life. My job is to protect what we have uh, put in place here. And, and, and because there are so many of you who are new to this family, and I, I wanted to take a moment um, to help you understand or see what is on this family's conscience. What's in this family's identity so that you can do this, so that you can decide if it's on your conscience as well. Um, For us to have unity as a church and as a family, especially as we continue to grow, we cannot have a divided conscience or a divided focus. And and so um, I don't want to have those conversations of like, hey, you know, you're going one way, we're going the other. I would rather in the beginning say, here's what's on our conscience. So you can go, well, that's actually not on mine. Totally fine. It's probably on somebody else's or some other churches. And it's so beautiful, the family of God. Some people hate denominationalism and they hate kind of that there's different churches in one place. No, no, no. God calls leaders to take spiritual responsibility over different locations. It's a beautiful thing. And so long as there's unity between those leaders, it's amazing. And so there may be other places that you will find yourself more at home. So that just kind of disclaimer. Now, um, we're going to talk about some other things, but we do have 10 core values. Here's our 10 core value cards. These are what some of them look like. They're out there. If you're new to the family, pick up. We have these in envelopes. Pick up an envelope of these. Go home and be like, do I want, here's the question, do I want these values to become my values? If you don't, you got to go somewhere else. Do I want these values to become my values? These are set in stone, and I promise you, you're not changing these. Okay, it's my job. I'm protecting it. All right. Here, here's the deal. <laughs> here's the deal. 
There's, in addition to these 10 core values, there's just a few other things that I want to enunciate clearly this evening about this family, about this church. So the first is this. To live in good conscience, Saints Hill must be centered on gratitude. You're like, yes, of course, that's amazing. But it's very rare. When God is moving in a people, like we're really sensing him move. I, I mean, I'm not alone, right? Like, I'm sensing God moving, and I'm sensing him creating a hunger in you, uh, in, our, in our town even. When God is moving into people really powerfully, there can be a fear that, if we're not careful, seeps in, and the fear is this. What if he stops? Have you felt that? <laughs> what if he stops? I don't want this to stop. And the reality is that every single person who's alive today was created to exist in his presence. You were created to exist in his glory. And so when you taste it, especially if you haven't for a long time, you go, oh my gosh, I need more of that. You, you go, I need more of that so much so that I'm willing to get up early on a Tuesday morning just to, just to get another taste of it. And, and, and I want you to know, I live for this. What we're experiencing right now, and, and just prophetically, it's not going to stop, guys. But what, what we're experiencing right now, this is what I've been praying for. This is what I've been dreaming for. This is what, dare I say, we've even been planning for to the best of our ability. It's a move of God, his, all his stuff. But we have been working and, and toiling uh, toward this end for years. Uh, from the time I was 17 with our sound guy, Andrew Fleming, at high school, I remember the dream of a church that was taken by the presence of God. I, I, we would have conversations late into the night. We would sing the song, some of the songs we sang tonight, we would sing in the car together when we were in high school with, with Jake Moyer and just, and just pour our hearts out to God. God, would you use us to see the next great awakening take place in our time? Would you use us? I, I, I dreamed of this with, with Andoni and with Jake for years we, we, we talked about this stuff and we implemented it in, into the little places we had responsibility, the young adults ministry at Bridgetown, the high school ministry at Bridgetown, the prayer team at Bridgetown. And, and, we, and that's the church that pl- helped us plant that I worked at before. And we, we would spend hours just dialoguing. Jake and I just went to lunch yesterday and we spent like two hours just talking about church philosophy and where we're going and, and what's going on. It, it's, it, that, we don't have to say, like, we should schedule a meeting to talk about this. No, we've been thinking about this for so long and, and, and wanting this for so long. What can happen when you begin to see the things that you've longed to see all your life is that in response to try to preserve what God is doing, you can be tempted to start building structures and programs around a move of God codifying methods, attempting to continue the move of God. Ultimately, I know it comes from a good place, guys, because you just want more of him, right? But I'm reminded of Paul's question to to the church. Are you now trying to perfect in the flesh what God began by the Spirit? And and, and so the question that I come to in this this time where, where God's obviously moving, he's so on it, is when we add new things or we come up with new ideas or different events or maybe if we just did this or that, is that what he's doing or is that what you're doing? You know, like, look, I want to walk in obedience, okay? I want to always have an ear to him. What are, what are you doing? Where are you going? I think that's in part, hear me, in part, one of the reasons why we're where we're at today because we had a group of crazy people who said, 
whatever he's doing, we're just going to do that. It's going to make us look weird. People are going to leave. They're not going to like us. They're going to ridicule us. And it doesn't matter. I would rather risk for the sake of the kingdom than not risk at all and be safe. So I, I want that, but I just want to make sure that we're staying in step with him. The potential for frantic activity around a move, of, a move of God is a result of thinking from lack instead of gratitude or allowing fear to rule instead of faith. Like, guys, God wants increase more than you. He loves Newburgh more than you. He, he loves the U.S. more than you. He's going to pour out more and more upon this town, upon the other churches in this town. But if our whole focus in a season like the one we're experiencing is on what we lack or that we're not quite there yet, we dishonor what he's doing in our present and we may end up attempting to control the move of God and quench it. I, I hear this sometimes, so this is like a, a, a fatherly pastoral word. I hear this sometimes. If we just did this, things would really pop. If we just had this in the church, then we'd really get there. Okay, on my conscience, there's no there. There's no there. The journey hand in hand with God is the point. The pace the staying in step, the, the listening to his voice. I'm not looking forward to a time where I don't need that anymore. All my life will be consumed with that. I, I pray it will. So, so my goal, you have to understand, isn't for a certain thing to happen. Like, when everybody gets slain in the spirit, then we'll know. Like, okay, great. If it ha- Okay, whatever. Like, my aim is to continue what we're doing. God, thank you for what you're doing. Help me stay near to your voice, God. Like, like you have to, okay. You have to understand, like, I don't go home at night and think about, like, man, someday that church, this church is really gonna be amazing. I go home and I'm convicted by the word or convicted by the Holy Spirit and how I treated my wife. <laughs> like, that's a measure of revival in my life, right? Like, it's like, what, how are you making me more like you, God, in the little things where nobody sees? This is all very exciting. The purpose of a Sunday is to celebrate. But, but, but it's, it's, this is not the purpose of your Christian walk. The, the purpose of your walk is to stay in step with him so that daily, day by day, as, as he cuts away the things that don't belong, you begin to produce more fruit in the places where maybe nobody will ever see. That's a measure of revival. That's a measure of a move of God. And, and so I, 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 it's a very, very simple kingdom, or a very, sorry, it's a very, very simple kingdom reality. What you celebrate, you see more of. Jesus, with a little lunch, he gave thanks, and it multiplied. It's a very simple reality. So let's take this position as a church. God, pour your spirit out. I'm interceding this constantly. I'll walk up and down the, the, the streets in my neighborhood. God, pour your spirit out on this home. Pour your spirit out into these streets. Pour your spirit out onto this town. God, I'm, gonna, I'm committed to remain obedient. And God, I just want to be in the room when you show up. I don't need it to look a certain way. I, I don't need us to do a certain thing. 
to feel like something's happening. No, I just want to be there when you show up. And so would you just knock me off my feet or would you just meet me in the still small voice? Whatever you want to do, I'm in. Gratitude is incongruence with our identity. You've done so much. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for this little thing. Thank you for healing that person there. Thank you for, for speaking that prophetic word there. Thank you for doing this. Gratitude unlocks and continues a move of God, guys. Secondly, second thing on my conscience, on our conscience as a church. To live in good conscience, Saints Hill must value the building of family over efficiency. Now, this sounds... Who wouldn't disagree with that? That sounds really nice, uh, written out like that. But I find that this is the biggest confusion that people have with Saints Hill. This is the conversation that I have more than any other conversation. And the reason for this kind of dichotomy is this. And the reason for the tension in some people's hearts is this. For a long time, the church in the West has looked to the business world to inform what leadership should look like. So the church has only ever been able to grow at the pace of the business world growing. Business world, great. Many of you guys work in business. It's awesome. Um, the metaphor used for the church down through ages has been all sorts of things. The state, it's been a school, it's been a, a monastery, the different metaphors for the church. Um, but in the United States, the primary metaphor for the church is an organization, is a business. And so you have customers. Who are your customers? It's you guys, the Sunday worshipers, Right? You're the customers, and you're like, hmm, is this church going to give me what I really want? Um, you have production managers. Who's the production managers? That's like me, people on staff, right? You have a CEO. It's the pastor. It's the leader of the church. And, and this metaphor and this model has produced some really organized and high-capacity churches. Churches that were able to scale in size quickly and accommodate many, many people. The only catch is this. The church isn't a business. It's just not a business. It's something different altogether. Jesus and the New Testament authors were not starting a business called the church. They weren't starting even a 501c3, but a baptized family of sinners made saints who represent Jesus to the world here and now. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he told them to address God as Father. When you pray, pray, our Father. Which instantly made all of us brothers and sisters. You were adopted into a family. And, and, and the reason why you're like, isn't it semantics? Well, here's the thing. The reason why this matters is there is a huge difference in metrics of success between business and family. In a business, the consumers are the priority. And acquiring more consumers is the priority. And so your leadership or your staff is always aimed at improving the product for the consumer. Always aimed at efficiency. How do we become more efficient? How this translates to the, to the church is that often people will build programs for people. We need to build this program. Why? I don't know if God really has anything to do with it, but for the people. They want the church to be attractive. How do we make this a more comfortable place for people to come and visit? I'll tell you what, just right off the bat, we've almost engineered this place to be the most difficult church experience you could possibly have. It's two hours long. You're going to stand a bunch. We're having you stand up for offering. Who does that? That's not very nice. We become organized for the consumer, for the person coming to our church. But I want to say this. On our conscience as a church is this. 
What if people aren't customers but sons and daughters? And what if God isn't a product but a father who wants to meet with his kids? It changes it all to the whole thing. How would that change your view of the church? Here's what this is going to mean for, for our church. The first thing is it's going to mean is that you should expect mess here. This will be a messy church. <laughs> we will have issues. Oh, gosh. I don't know. This could get me in trouble. We'll find out. We, we could have issues in this church that you know could be solved with a system if they just had a system in place. But if that system was in place, it would remove relational empowerment. So we won't do it. <laughs> See, I, I'm willing personally to risk mess if it means giving authority and responsibility away to the people that God is giving authority and responsibility away to. Now maybe you're thinking, you're like, but hang on a second. Would God give responsibility of his bride to people who make, make messes? That seems irresponsible. Well, here's the thing. May we never forget that right before Peter started the church, Jesus called him Satan. So I, I find it often that the church has far less grace for people than God does. My point is this. The church exists to equip saints, not build programs. And saints sometimes make messes. They hurt people's feelings. They compete with one another out of insecurity. I've done this. They, they think that something is prophetic, and it's just not prophetic. It's okay. It's okay. We're expecting it. We want it. We almost added a, an 11th value. Mess. It was a little on the nose. So we're like, maybe we won't actually put that on one of the cards. It's like, what does a declaration for mess look like? I don't know if I even want to, do I want to declare that prophetically over this, this church? See, in a business, whoever makes a mess needs to be eliminated so that you can mitigate risk. The person has to go. But in a family, you celebrate opportunities to produce growth wherever you find them. <laughs> I, I, you know, my, my daughter is still quite young. I wonder if I'll ever be mad at her. <laughs> Maybe I will. Some of your parents are like, oh, you will be. Okay. But the love of a father, and, and, and here's the thing, how much better is he? It's our job, this is my job, and I know you're going to have to have grace with me because I'll probably let you down in some, one of these areas, but, but it's, it's our job to represent the father again. Let me present the father to you again. This is what he's like. And he's okay with the mess. Let's have a conversation about it. This all works so long as we remain confrontable. The instant that we move and we're no longer able to be confronted, this, this won't work. Family doesn't, doesn't work without confrontation. And, and so I just want to say in your heart purpose to say, I want family to work, I can be confronted. I want family to work, I can be confronted. And, and Doni, you do this better than almost anybody I know. There, there is almost, I'll bring problems to Andoni that are going on. And it's like, I can't bring a problem to him without him seeing an opportunity for growth. He's like, well, actually, if you think about it this way, 
And I'm like, that's such an amazing characteristic to have in one of our elders. I'm so grateful for that. And we've talked about confrontation. I did like four weeks ago, five weeks ago. Go back, listen to it. I think it's really important for us to get that into our culture. Mess doesn't reveal a problem with the vision or mission. Mess is the natural result of building people big enough to risk and not quite get it right the first time. So we're going to do it. We're going to risk. Okay, secondly, I need to, sorry, let me speed up. Secondly, relationships before leadership. What does it mean for us to, to value family over efficiency? What's going to be the result? Relationships before leadership. As you are looking at this family, know this, that we would rather not do a ministry enterprise than do one with people we don't have relationship with. You're like, why does it take so long to get on the worship team? Oh, it's through family. Why does it take so long to do this or that? Oh, well, we're not actually just looking. Efficiency isn't the highest value. It's relationship. There are things that our church, that you're noticing maybe even, we don't have. And other churches, maybe even the ones you maybe even have been to before, they have this thing that you really enjoyed or that you participated in. Um, Simply rest assured in this. It could be, the reason for that could be that God hasn't asked us to do that specific thing Or it could be that we don't have relationship with anyone to lead that specific thing. And so we're just not going to do it. Maybe a good idea, but we're not going to do it unless there's a a relational trust built with somebody who is qualified as a leader to lead that specific endeavor. Um, For for a long time, the way that I, when I first uh, started working for a church, the way that I ran my ministry was this. (laughs) Learn from me. Uh, Does anybody have any talents? (laughs) Okay, you? All right. Can you do this? You? Can you come over here and do that? You, can you be on my team? You got time on Tuesday nights? Okay, come on, be on my team. And I would have people come up to me and be like, hey, I got a pretty amazing voice, so uh, you'd be lucky to have me. And I was like, I would. I don't have any team. Okay, come on. And then I met Andoni. And when I met Andoni, I remember the night I met you. I think it was the night I met you or, or shortly after that. Andoni looks at me, and he says, whatever you do, I want to serve you in it. And I was like, what? I was like, I'm used to people. I have a really great gift, so I could probably help you out. Whatever you do, I want to serve you in it. At the time, just to be honest, I thought I was this big of a leader. And I thought Andoni was like, oh, well, I'll bring him along. The reality was this. (laughs) He was such a big leader, he revealed his greatness through service. He didn't need a position to, a, a, a glamorous position. Why? Because he knew who he was. And so he then, for, do you remember this? For a full year, basically, we met once a week at, uh, at your apartment building, and he never said, hey, you should really think about doing this. You should really think about doing this in the, in the young adults. You should really think about, you should change that. He just said, hey, so how can we do that? See, he already knew the answer. He, he already knew exactly what we should do. So he had more experience than me. But he slowly, through service, led me to come to the same conclusion. Do you know what that did? That made him my brother. That bound me to him as a ministry partner. That, like, married us in ministry. We have the little saying around here, and some of you are going to love this, and some of you aren't going to love this. And if you don't like this, you might have to find another church. Um, we have this little saying around here. 
Get our vision, and when you do, we'll get your vision. Get our vision, and whenever you do, we're going to get your vision. I, I, I want to take a moment to, uh, to honor a couple people here tonight. Chris and Laura Sharp, where are you guys? Over there. W wave your hands real fast. Um, and then uh, Mariah Fredericks, where are you? Where is, is she here? Oh, there she is. Yes, okay. Um, the, the, so Mariah leads our middle school uh, ministry, and Chris and Laura lead our high school ministry. And when we first planted the church, we did not have a high school ministry or a middle school ministry. It wasn't really on my mind. Honestly, I was like, can we make it? <laughs> like, do you think people will even tithe? That was my question. I'm like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this thing. And I have watched over the past two, th three years, I have watched you guys um, get our vision. So much to the degree that these values have become yours. And your homes have changed because of it. The way that you think about your vocation has changed because of it. How you live your life has changed because of it. And it, you never wanted anything. You never said, I should do this, or can we do this? You guys, you simply came in and you trusted us enough to say, well, maybe we'll just see what this church is about and, and we'll, we'll get their vision. And I, I want you guys to know, do you know how much freedom they have in their ministries? It's immense. They can do anything they want, basically. <laughs> That is legal for a youth group to do. Okay, yeah. Um, because they got the vision. They're like, that seems so arbitrary. Here's the thing. In a family, everything runs at the pace of relationship. It just does. So we may be slower to the things that you're like, we should, that church should have this. We may be slower to it because we're building family. Okay. This will also mean... Back to the conscience thing. To live in good conscience, Saints Hill must leave a legacy of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Um, I want you to know that when we're planning, when we're working on curriculum or new worship events or building community over tacos, um, I am dreaming about what this culture will do for your children's children and their relationship to one another and to God here in this valley. We have like a hundred-year vision. We have like a, a long vision for what this, you know, will become. And, and if I could sum up the legacy we want to leave here, it would be faith, hope, and love. Um, Paul frames these as values of the present kingdom before the age to come. We know that faith and hope, we have no need for that in heaven. We will see clearly face to face. Um, but currently, those are the characteristics of the kingdom. Uh, and these values require, faith, hope, and love require a heaven-to-earth mindset in order to exist. Without trust in God, without faith, there's no hope. And without hope, there's no ability to self-sacrifice in love with pure motive. If you don't have hope, you will always love people in order to control the outcome. Yet, one of the things that I'm finding in this season, and I found in other seasons past, but particularly right now, is that faith and hope offend. How? How can faith and hope offend? Faith, faith and hope offend. There are many who have organized their religion around things that require no faith or hope in order to be reasonable and palatable to the world around them. Here's the voice that I've heard. Maybe you've heard this. How can you be so optimistic? It's offensive. Don't you know the modern difficulties that people face today? The hatred, the racism, the inequality? 
Healing doesn't happen. Don't be stupid. People could get their hopes dashed if someone else gets what they wanted, if someone else seems to be more blessed than them. Have you forgotten what this world is like? No, I haven't forgotten what this world is like. I just don't build my theology over what this world is like. See, the Lord's Prayer doesn't exist to keep me occupied till heaven. Like, hey, just pray this. Nothing will happen, but you'll feel psychologically soothed if you pray it. No, it's there as a life direction from the unseen to the seen. That's to be my life direction, from the unseen to the seen. It's the risk to see what doesn't exist in our world, but exists in heaven, take up residence here as well. That's to be the shape of my life. So healing is a part of that. It doesn't exist in this moment. They have have an issue with their ankle. They have an issue with their stomach. It doesn't exist in this moment, but it exists in heaven. This problem does not exist in heaven. So God, I call that reality. To, be, to take place here in our reality. You told me to pray this. It's joy. How can you have joy? Don't you know what's going on around the world? It's peace. It's dreaming again. It's mental health. The unseen moving to the seen. See, it is on my conscience to pursue that which requires faith and hope. I don't want to pursue things as a church that could happen without faith or hope. When uh, the, the, the day after we really felt called to come to Newburgh, some of you guys know this story, uh, we got on an airplane, we flew down to Reading to visit you guys, to visit Jake and Becky, and the Lord told me two things. He said, I am laying over Newburgh. I saw the whole kind of hills over here, and I saw this beautiful, you know, hand-woven, vegetable-dyed tapestry kind of laid over the hills, And he said, I'm laying over Newburgh a garment of praise in exchange for its heaviness. I was like, wow. And then he said this. He said, tell people to get their hopes up. See, I had a lot of people, church church planters who really knew what they were doing, don't get people's hopes up. But he told me, tell people, get your hopes up. Get expectant. See, there are some of you who are here this evening and this is the only place where you really feel joy or you feel hope in your life. There are some of you and you have neighbors who you interact with and simply because you are in Christ, they sense in your little conversations peace and joy and that may be the only interaction with heaven they get in a week. Faith and hope matter. I, I remember, and, and this, is rea- this is just part of maturing in Christ, I remember before I knew how to strengthen myself in the Lord and get joy regardless of my circumstances, I needed a church family who could steward their minds and hearts in truth so that joy was the result. I needed it so badly. I remember when I was 17, 18, 19 years old, I was going to Solid Rock. It was called Solid Rock at the time. It's now called Westside. And Phil Comer, would, uh, when he would preach, I loved it when he preached. He would get up there and he'd be like, good morning, everybody. How you doing? And everybody's like, you know, instant smile. And he'd be like, let's sing a song real fast. And he'd sing a song. And, and, I, and I just, I was like, what? You know, this guy isn't, you know, he's not the smartest guy in the world. And, and his son is so articulate and so smart. And, 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 you know, I love that. But I came for Phil. Why? 
Because he had something from the unseen and he was making it seen. He had a source I didn't, I didn't have. He had a joy and a hope and a faith that I so longed for. Do you realize how evangelistic faith and hope are? How contagious those are to, the, to a world that is so desperate to, to know. Is there anything beyond this? Is there anything worth hoping in? This is what we are to be as disciples, little tastes of the unseen so that people are reminded what they were created for. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Notice this. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. A reason for hope. It doesn't say, always be prepared for skepticism. It doesn't say, always be prepared for disappointment. I mean, he could have said that, right? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, always be prepared for disappointment. No. Always be prepared to be let down. No. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. There's a reason. It's called the resurrection. The resurrection proves that nothing is impossible. The resurrection shows it was the, it was the cracking open of our universe, God reaching down in and saying, there's a source beyond what is seen. There's a reality beyond what you can sense around you. This is what we will leave as a legacy. We are a people marked by the expectation of God to show up. Faith, hope, and joy. We aren't saying that life isn't tough or that bad things don't happen when you're a Christian. No, bad things will happen in your life. It's, it's, it's life. It's just that we have a commitment to think and live from the finished work of the cross to do anything less is to dishonor his sacrifice. So we're gonna maintain a hopeful place. All right, let's all stand together. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier.